Welcome to the Christ Covenant School podcast. In today's episode, we will listen as Gabe Fleur leads our Middle School Dads Forum on the topic of marriage. Gabe Fleur is the Minister of Discipleship at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Y'all, thanks for letting me be here. Um, It's kind of hilarious to stand up here and think about talking to y'all about marriage because I've been married for like 12 years. Some of y'all have been married a lot longer than that. Um, So all I'm going to try to do is pass on what uh, the Lord's been teaching me. So uh, I don't have any major insights. I'm going to be borrowing from a book uh, that I use in premarital counseling by Paul David Tripp called What Did You Expect? And let me just say at the outset, if you read one book for your marriage, read that book. Um, and I tell the couples that I, uh, let me quote me, um, I tell the couples that I'm working with, if you, if, you, if you do what this book says, which is going to be in a supernatural act of God's grace to do that, you won't get divorced. And that's how good I think it is in the biblical principles he lays out. But let me read from God's word and then pray for us. I think a familiar passage, if you've been around church, um, hub, um, Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these men. There are things going on in this room this morning that I don't know about. There's pain, there's frustration, there is stress, there's worry. But Lord, there's also grace for all of us, and that's what we need to hear about. We need Jesus more than we've ever imagined we would need him, and we are slow to admit that. So would you help us be quick to admit that this morning, all of us? Help us to see that our need far outweighs our um, our awareness of that need and then help us to see that your grace far outweighs all the needs we could ever imagine so bless us and help us and grow us and make us men and husbands that fulfill this picture of Christ in his church here that we read about in Ephesians 5 we pray in Jesus name amen so that's kind of the charter verse for how we're supposed to live as husbands and I wanted to take one um, one of the principles that Paul David Tripp lays out in that book and focus in on that this morning and then leave some time for Q&A. And here's, here's the principle, that as a couple, as a married couple, husbands and wives, we will make growth and change our daily agenda. Okay, And that goes straight into all kinds of parts of the New Testament. Paul, with that paradigm of put off the old man, put on the new man in Christ, you know, if you notice how Paul's letters are structured, he basically spends the first half telling you what God has done for you and sends the, spends the second half telling you what to do about it now. So grace, then here's what you do with it. Never the other way around. That's a false religion. Paul's always going to say, here's what's been done. Here's what to do about it. And at the top of that list of here's what to do about the grace that God has shown you, here's how to live it out, at the top of that list is change. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, as men especially, we look in the mirror each morning and we say, there is a lot here that I have shame about. There's a lot here that I wish I could change. And change seems really hard. And then what I think is um, not hilarious, I shouldn't put it that way, but then God puts two sinners together who both have that problem and says, live. <laughs> and I think it's all to bring us to our knees to say, we've got to be dependent daily on his grace. And one of the ways we do that is to make growth and change as a married couple our daily agenda. Now, Tripp puts it this way. He says, marriage really is just a long-term exercise in gardening. Okay, now let me, let me just stop here. I grew up in South Carolina, 
And one of the things that I remember vividly, I'll be going home in about a week for my dad's retirement party. The house I grew up in, right near downtown Greenville, when we moved there, um, it was you know 100 plus year old house. And somebody asked my dad, well, why'd you buy this old rundown house? And he looked at me and my brothers and said, well, I got free labor. So for summers and falls and winters, my brothers and I worked and helped, helped restore the house. But the deal was like in the backyard, it was totally overgrown. And then my mom is, I don't know, it's just like her hobby. She, she can garden like nobody's business. So within like two years and still to this day, there's this incredible garden in the back that she basically single-handedly built. I mean, we'd move some stuff for her. And, and as I thought about that garden growing up and what it felt like to sit there and smell the beautiful smells and see the beautiful flowers, especially after becoming a Christian and being back there in the garden, that's what marriage is, right? If, if, if you know anything about gardening and I don't, or if you know anything about taking care of your lawn, you don't have to do anything to make weeds grow. You just let it alone, okay? If you go to my yard right now, had me able to cut it this week, lots of crabgrass growing, that happens. Don't know why my other turf won't grow. I know the crabgrass will a lot faster than the stuff I want to grow. It's the same thing in our social and relational lives. If you just leave something alone because of sin, the weeds are going to grow. And so what trip is after is we, we plant seeds after pulling weeds. So that's what change looks like. It's uprooting the old, putting in the new. Let me just run through quickly some of the marriage weeds he outlines. First is selfishness. Okay. The root of all of our problems in marriage. Uh, let me give you one example of how this will show up in our marriages. How do we show, how is, I mean, I don't need to really give you some examples. All of us here know how selfish we are. Uh, a big one, though, is being persistently late. That's a question to ask yourself, especially as men. Are we persistently late so that when we say, hey, I'll be home at 530 and we show up at 540? Um, what that does over time, and this is a good place to, I think, put this in, as we all know, it's rarely kind of the one big fight that will destroy a marriage. Uh, just like it's not the one big storm that will do as much damage to the house as the steady drip, drip, drip of water in a foundation. This is one of those drip, drip, drip things where if you are persistently late, your wife, your kids are going to learn, hey, daddy's word isn't trustworthy. That's how big a deal it is. I'm not trying to beat you up. I, I struggle with this because ministry stuff can... Here's the deal. We'll come back to this. Communication. Um, at this level especially. If you're going to be like call and do your best to keep that word, that's just one small area where we see selfishness show up in our marriages. And here's something else Tripp highlights that I love what he said. None of us are not selfish. We're just selfish differently. Okay? Your wife is differently selfish than you're selfish. And that's what we're trying to learn in marriage is where we're, we're both selfish. And you've got certain areas where we kind of go, hey, this is mine. This is my time. This is my you know, area. Leave it alone. And one of the hardest things I think for us to do as men is realize the moment we got married, the whole one flesh theology we read about in Genesis meant all of our goals, all of our ambitions, all of our hobbies died. That's another thing when I'm doing premarital counseling. I said there's going to be a death on that wedding day. It's the death to who you were as individuals. Now, you keep your individuality. You're one flesh, but you still have hopes and dreams and fears, and God honors our individuality in marriage, but our agendas, our goals, all that now is in concert with the woman we're married to. That's hard for us, I think. It's hard for me, at least. Uh, I like things very ordered, um, so I, I get stressed very easily when 
I mean, I'm just planning contingency. I've got everything mapped out, and then you have kids. And then you have work and jobs. And everything kind of explodes that, and that's where the stressors come in. And that's where our selfishness shows up. I love what Luther said. He said, I am more afraid of Pope's self than a hundred popes in Rome. You know, and, and let's be reminded of when he said that. Like, I can say that now and we're like, ha there's that nice Pope over in Rome. They're like trying to kill him, you know, sending imperial guards after him. And he goes, I'm not really scared of dying because the Pope wants to kill me. I'm scared of Pope's self. Uh, and that resonated with me. Selfishness. Next, busyness. Here's what Tripp says. We try to have $100 conversations in dime moments. That sounded like your marriage. $100 conversations in dime moments. And if you ask any one of us today, I think, if I stopped right after here, what do you got going on today? Man, crazy busy. You know, it's the end of the year here and everybody's rushed. And I honestly think May might be the most difficult month of the year for parents. I've been thinking about that. Not December. Not in the holidays, this like month here because you got kids finishing and vacation, everything else coming at you, work stress. When we, we give in to the kind of the busyness cycle, that is going to probably affect our marriage more than anything else, especially if you've got kids in middle school. Okay? That's kind of a big deal age. That's where our discipleship as men is going to show up in our in our kids. And so that busyness cycle, and look, we're all in it, right? One of the things we're learning here is Everybody does everything whenever they can here in Jackson, okay? Like all the kids are in four different activities one night a week, and we kind of made a commitment early on, hey, we can do maybe two activities with the kids, that's it. And we're finding that that will kind of limit your social ability with children because everybody else's kids are doing stuff. Mm -hmm. But what, and that's fine. If you choose to do that, I'm, I'm not here to judge that. What I'm saying is in marriage, especially when the kids show up, we will definitely try to do this $100 conversation in dime moments kind of things. And this is where it comes to us as men. When we talk about leadership, I think it's one of the most misunderstood parts of the Bible with men as the head of the house. I'm fully on board with what we call complementarianism, which you know, the man is the head of the home, but the wife is, you know, submit to the husband. But there's very biblical ways to define that where you know, it's not that the woman is subservient or anything like that. My point is this. One of the major ways we lead is to be intentional about setting up times for us to work on our marriage, to get those moments where we're not squeezing $100 conversations into dime moments. We create $100 moments. Um, one of the things we do, just to, uh, may helpful for you or not, every morning um, for the past 15 years, we get up and have coffee together for 30 minutes every morning. Um, and that's one way where sometimes we don't talk much, sometimes we talk a bunch. But it's a way before the day gets going that we connect. Um, and then we try to set aside time each night. doesn't work out as much. But, you know, we all talk about date nights and things like that. Whether you call it a date night, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be a fancy dinner. It doesn't have to be expensive. It has to be intentional time where we set aside the busyness and say we're going to work on marriage. We're going to work on us. Busyness. Um, uh, the next thing, so selfishness, busyness, inattention, inattention. Here's, here's the question to ask ourselves. Do we take our wives for granted? Or maybe the better question is, do they feel like we take them for granted? And that flows right from busyness, right? Because right now, sometimes you get up and you're just trying to survive. you got kids going every direction. you got lunches. You've got you know, your stuff at work, whatever. Maybe if your wife works. I mean, it's just, it is crazy. It is crazy busy on a morning. And, and that leads to the busyness, to inattention, 
And here, here's another way to put it. Is there any pursuit of your wife anymore? Okay. I love to hunt. And part of the thrill of the hunt, it, you know, is the hunt. <laughs> it's not just bringing down the animal. I love that part. I love the meat that comes from it. But I, I'm, I'm kind of wacky that I love sitting up in a deer stand, just senses tuned in, waiting for that animal, you know, or stalking it through the woods, whatever it is. And, you know, when we're pursuing our wives, you think about the first time you went on a date with her, you know? Most of the time, you're going to be caring what you look like and what you smell like. Um, we, we cared, my, is my point, because there was pursuit. Um, the, one of the things I'm learning in marriage is that that takes a lot to keep that fire stoked, doesn't it? fire of pursuit of our wives. And one of the saddest things to me um, is I watch, you know, couples older than anybody in here sitting in restaurants on their phones not talking to each other, you know. And you can tell there's just kind of no romance uh, there anymore. I think of uh, Jason Isbell, one of my favorite singers. He wrote this great song called Flagship, and there's this line in the song where it says, a couple at the bar is sitting there a million miles apart. She's got nothing left to learn about his heart. And sometimes our marriage can feel like that, like we have nothing left to learn about her heart. But we do. And that's where it comes to paying attention to her and pursuing her. Um, here's what Tripp writes. True and lasting love is knowing. That is, it is a commitment to love one another in ways that are specific to who he or she is. Loving our wives specific to who he, or, or she, them loving us, to who she is. Who, what does she need? What are her hopes and fears? What is she still worried about going into the next phase of life, right? The next season of life. Do we pursue her that way? Are we good listeners? Are we, does she know that when we're with her, she's the most important person in the world? Um, that, that's what we're after here. So selfishness, busyness, inattention, self-righteousness. Um, isn't it amazing when we have arguments with our spouse that we definitely tend to think we're the one who is the better marriage partner, right? We've got our inner self-defense attorney that anytime we're criticized reminds us of 50,000 reasons why we're awesome and everybody else is not, you know? Especially when we have conflict with our spouse, we immediately put up, no, 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 I, I got this. This is who I am. This is why I rock. And you should be grateful to be married to me. Uh, do we think of ourselves as the better spouse in the marriage? And here's another way, that maybe this kind of stings for me to even say, do we welcome self-criticism from our spouse? Now, it's got to be constructive because the way that can show up is you know, sniping back and forth. But when our spouse has a genuinely good, constructive criticism, do we welcome that? Um, do we humble ourselves? Right? And this is all kind of just basic discipleship following Jesus, humble ourselves. And, and listen, and be quick to repent, slow to anger, all the things the Lord tells us about and gives us the grace to do. I think if you're going to ask me to highlight kind of my two big ones or three big ones here, at least the two biggies I see in my life are selfishness and self-righteousness. And, and we'll get to the cure for all this in a moment, but we can become experts at justifying anything, can't we? And that's part of self-righteousness. So the other thing here, uh, selfishness, busyness, inattention, self-righteousness, fear. Fear. How does that show up? Well, think about it this way. We are afraid of what we're afraid of because we love what we love. Or put another way, as a friend of mine puts it, you do what you do because you love what you love. 
And so you fear what you fear because you love what you love. It's all about motivations, right? Um, if we're afraid of losing our health, and that's what's motivating us, we're going to buy a lot of insurance, we're going to spend a lot of time on our bodies, and that's going to impact how we spend time somewhere else. If our biggest fear is financial ruin, then our time is going to be spent working to make sure as best as we can to cover every contingency so that doesn't happen. But again, we've only got 24 hours. We're allocating our time doing that and <clears throat> worshiping that. God is after our hearts saying, here's what I want you to recalibrate. I want you to fear me. As John Knox, the great reformer, said, uh, the fear of God is the one fear that destroys all others. And that's what we need, a healthy dose of that fear. And I don't mean slavish fear. I mean we're afraid that God's going to strike us down if we fail him. I'm talking about that reverence, that awe, that, that, that awe that comes from such a deep love and profound respect for who God is and how he's loved us. That was the only thing that will overcome fear. And here's how it shows up in our marriage, this fear of man, right? We're afraid of what people think. This is one of the reasons we don't talk to other men when problems are happening in our marriage, right? Uh, the saddest part of my job, the happiest part of my job is the starry-eyed couple sitting in front of me, um, waiting to get married. And here's the question I ask them. Man, there's a lot of me quoting this morning. I'm sorry, y'all. But this, this is, I hope it's useful to you. If it's not, just discard it. But here's the question. I heard somebody ask this once, and I've used it ever since. Um, what I, these, these couples who are just so in love, um, what are you going to do the first time you feel the same way you feel right now about your future spouse about somebody else? What are you going to do then? Because that is coming. I know you can't imagine it, but it is coming. Because this feeling of kind of starry-eyed in love and this person's the greatest thing ever, that will fade. And, it needs, and it's right and proper that it does in, in God's economy because what God's going to do then is grow a different kind of lasting love in its place. This is just the beginning. But you will have times when all of us know this, right? You will feel that same way about a, a somebody else. And, and the way that that plays into our culture today is people say, well, then that's why, you know, that's why I get a divorce. This person makes me feel alive. How many times I've heard that in the post-marital breakup deal when I'm counseling people. This person makes me feel alive. I felt dead. It's almost like kind of regeneration language, to use a good theological term. It's like, I once was lost and now I'm found. And, and the, one of the things I, I have come across that I just want to say to you all here is, find another man or somebody you trust, pastor, counselor, whatever, to talk about with before you get to that point, before we get to the divorce point, before we get to the point of saying, I'm done with this marriage. And that comes down to us being, not being afraid of what people are going to think. It really does come back to the fear of man. We've got to be able to say, I, I don't care what people think. This matters more than my reputation. I need to save my marriage. Um, fear. Last thing here, laziness. So selfishness, busyness, inattention, self-righteousness, fear, and laziness. How does laziness show up? You know, there's, there comes to that point almost in every marriage, not almost, but in every marriage, where you just, you stop working it. You know, we go to bed angry. We don't resolve conflicts biblically. We just kind of bury them and, and let it go, and, and we don't really let it go, though, right? And a lot of times when I see big-time marital fights, what's happened is this. Um, the wife and the husband both have a running tally in their minds. And this takes a lot of energy, doesn't it, of all the wrongs? And so all it takes is one little thing, and then we've got World War III, 
and everybody has their defense attorney up and they're all talking about why the other person's awful and they're awesome and it goes back and forth and we end up with a huge mess because there was never biblical reconciliation between the people in the first place. So one of the things the Lord's up to in our lives is he, in this sense, spiritual life is work. It's all of grace. Come to that here in a second. But what grace will do for us is say, I am so thankful for what God has done for me. The way that I honor him is by following him in the hard path of crucifying myself to my desires, my goals, to service of my family and then everybody else. Our families, our primary you know, uh, um, a group that God entrusts to us to shepherd his men. Everybody in here is a pastor of your family, okay? And the way that God does that is he says, I'm going to call you to do the hard work of change, and it's going to be work. And he says, I want you to crucify laziness in this. And one of the, the difficult things is, for me at least, you get home from a hard day at work and there's conflict, you don't want to work through that right now. You just want to sit down and take a break, right? You've been working. Um, this is one of those times where we have got to ask Jesus, I can't do this in my strength. I'm tired. I'm not all with it. I've been spending myself on behalf of this family all day, and the last thing I want to do is work through conflict right now. We'll talk about some strategies in a second, but that's what we've got to be doing. We've got to be men who are going to say, I'm going to crucify that and follow Jesus um, in that. So what do we do? What are some ways that we can um, plant seeds, and what are some seeds that we can plant? Um, well, first thing we have to recognize when we see all these things, selfishness, busyness, inattention, self-righteousness, is that the gospel is for people like that. Okay? So if that describes you, and it describes me, if that describes you, the good news is, and the best part about being a Christian is, we can start where we are. No preparation needed. We don't have to, like, work ourselves up to, okay, now I'm not nearly as self-righteous, and now I can begin to change. Change can happen when you get home tonight. That's the best part about all of this is it can happen right now because God's grace is always available. You can't out-sin it, out-live it, or out-give it. And that's the beauty of being a Christian. So for us as men, it's, it's really a time for, for us to kind of take, a, take stock of where we are and say, Lord, I may not have admitted this, but I really need grace more than I ever thought I did. I really need to know that you are pleased with me as an adopted son of yours. And that Zephaniah 3.17 is true of me today. That you sing and rejoice over me with loud shouts. That you're cheering me on, as it were. You, you celebrate your work in my life. And therefore, with that firm foundation of grace that you know, we don't perform to please. Our performance never determines our status in God's kingdom. That's the beauty. That's why Paul uses the language in Colossians that he's transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. Not that we walked over there. We're dead. Paul told us that in Ephesians 2. He took dead men, made them alive, placed us in his kingdom by his grace, and says, one of the beautiful things about following me, one of the beautiful things about grace is now, here's how you live it out. Here's how it's going to change your marriage. Because if there's one place that our lack of sanctification, our lack of Christ-likeness is going to show up more than any other, we can hide it in a lot of areas. We can't hide it in our homes, can we? And, and here's kind of the other pressure that exerts itself on us as men is we're always teaching. We're teaching our sons what manhood looks like. We're teaching our daughters what manhood looks like. 
teaching our daughters this is how a man treats his wife. We're teaching our sons this is how a man treats his wife. And that can crush us. Because if you're anything like me, you wake up and there's just a lot of feelings, I failed. I failed at this. Is there any hope? Is there more grace? That's the story of the Old Testament, guys. Been teaching through numbers to our men at First Pres, and the beauty of reading the book of Numbers is failure, 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 land. <laughs> he still brings him in the land. Failure, 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 grace. Always more. Always more for what we need. And, and so when we have that confidence, and that's why it always comes back to the gospel. And, and we have this confidence, it begins to change us, it begins to melt us into men who are humble and gentle and patient and those fruits of the Spirit. And so the thing is, if you, if you kind of need a marriage recalibration this morning, the best place to start is not, okay, what do I do? Which is my inclination, all right? And, and this shows up in my marriage this way. My wife just lost her mom unexpectedly last month. And so I'm a pastor, I'm a trained counselor, all this other stuff, and I'm going, okay, so here's the plan. Here's how we're going to fix this. We're going to get through grief. Here's the steps to it. She doesn't need that. And what we don't need to do is go out of here and say, how do I fix? How do I start fixing today? Where we need to start is, um, I need more of God. I need more of Jesus. I need more of the cross. I need more of the grace that flows from him in ways that I can't possibly imagine. And Lord, please help me repent of thinking you are less gracious than you tell me you are. Isn't that one of our problems? We think that the grace is going to run out because we're still trying to relate to him on a merit-based system. And he's telling us and shouting at us through his word, I love you, I have more grace, and here's how to live it out in your marriage. So how do we move from manipulation to ministry? First, the relationship, again, vertical, first and foremost, how we relate to God. And that might be just a good time for an aside right here. How do you relate to him, brothers? Do you fundamentally see God as somebody who's going to fold his arms and kind of be the disdaining father until you get it right? Or is he the God of Zephaniah 3.17? Maybe the most shocking verse in the Bible, right? If you've ever read that Old Testament book, it's like the old school judgment book up until that point. Like, hey, Israel, your bodies are going to lie in the desert and stink and fester and rot because you've violated my covenant. Then you get to Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord is our Father, a God who rejoices over us with shouts and loud singing. That's the God of the Bible. Yes, he's wrathful. But if you're in Christ, he's poured out that wrath on him. So that there is never a time where he stands with his arms folded against you, brothers. If that's how we're relating to him, it's going to change how we relate to others. That's where we got to start. I'm just so passionate for that in my life, and I hope for you as well, that, that we relate to God as he really is to us in Jesus. That's why the gospel's good news. That's why Paul would like get in prison for it, because he deeply tasted this, right? That God's love for him. Ephesians 3 was the depth, the width, the height, the breadth, the love of God to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where we start. So, what are some practical ways to minister to our wives as we seek to live out this grace? Look for ways to love her well. Be on the lookout. Be like a heat-seeking missile towards that. And this is, you know, maybe corny and hokey, but what is her love language? If I send my wife flowers, she'll be like, awesome, thank you. If I go clean the kitchen, buddy, that's a love language right there. 
You know, you want to, you, you want my wife love language. Put a sponge in your hand. Don't send me flowers. <laughs> what is her? What What does she need? How do we study her and say we're listening every day? What are fears here? How can I help alleviate those fears? What are ways to love her practically? And that's going to be different for everybody in here. Okay. Look for reasons to be thankful with her. You know, one of the things that can really kill a marriage is the grumbling spirit that we read about in the Old Testament of the people of Israel, right? And that shows up in our lives. And grumbling always turns to self-pity, which always raises our buddy, the inner defense lawyer. Self-pity always leads to self-justification. You know, should be, my life should be easier because I'm awesome. My marriage should be easier because I'm great. My kids should be better behaved because I'm doing a good job. Or at least I deserve better. I might be to be doing a good job. I'll, you know, I'll admit that I'm not doing a good job. But things should be easier, God. Why are you doing this to me? And the cure for that, what does Paul say? Rejoice always and be thankful. Um, it is amazing if we take a minute and just start thanking God for all the blessings each day when we feel these things coming on. You know? I mean, I think about us, I was driving over here this morning, beautiful sunrise over the purple clouds, and we just got some amazing sunrises here in Mississippi. Um, and, and seeing that and just going, thank you, Lord, for letting me see that. Thanks for letting me give the opportunity to come and talk to a group of men this morning. Whatever it is, guys, take the time. Be thankful. And be thankful with your wife. Celebrate her. Be thankful for what she does. Let her know about that. Um, look for ways to overlook offenses. Okay? There's biblical ways to deal with serious conflict in our marriages, right? One of the best ways is to overlook the minor offenses. Okay? We're, we're getting a crash course in this in my house, walking with my wife through grief. There's going to be times she says stuff to me. I know she doesn't mean it. I know it's grief, and I need to be really, really merciful and not take it personally. And that's how God built us, right? Thick skin, soft hearts. That's what he's calling us for. And there's got to be a lot of times in a marriage where as the leader in the home, you know what leadership is? Here's one of the big parts of leadership. Overlook offense. Don't take it personally. Now, I'll caveat that with there's times where we need to confront each other well. And we need to work through those things. But I will say most of the little problems that lead to big fights that I've seen in marriage are offenses that could be overlooked by both parties. Okay? Overlook offense. Overlook offenses. Uh, look for ways to be kind. Kindness goes a long way in marriage, doesn't it? Where are ways that we can be more kind to our wives? I'm talking about simple acts of kindness. How we speak, our tone, our body language. And again, just notice how much we have to think about all this. <laughs> Not trying to load you up. I'm just trying to, to, I'm working through this myself. Just how do I have the mindset when I come in and cross the threshold every day and go, how, Lord, help me have the mindset of working to understand the little people that are in my house and this woman you gave me better. Make me a student until I go to bed. And make me a student all over again of these people when I get back up in the morning. Um, help me to be kind. Look for ways to be faithful and gentle. What is gentleness? Here's one way to describe it. Something doesn't get damaged when you handle it. You know, our wives damaged, our children damaged when we handle them. And remember, anger is a good emotion. God gave us anger to break things. Okay? That's what anger's for. He, it's a good emotion directed in the right uh, direction. 
focused in the right direction, it's a good emotion. The problem with our anger is, why it's so often condemned in the scriptures, the sinful anger, is we break the wrong things. We break what God has told us to handle gently. And one way, uh, here's what Tripp says about gentleness. It's a quiet confidence in the power of God to change what needs to be changed. So at some point or another, all of us are going to have to realize we're not the Holy Spirit for our wife, our wives. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit for them. And we've got to trust God to answer prayer for change. That's just, I think, another area I neglect in my own life is just to pray for these things for my wife, for my kids. Do we have that quiet confidence in the power of God to change what needs to be changed? That's an aspect of gentleness. So look for ways to love, to be thankful, to overlook offenses, to be kind, faithful, and gentle. And the last one is this. Look for ways to practice self-control. I read a study recently about the most successful CEOs in our country, and they asked, you know, what was the one character trait? Uh, we, we all kind of remember the self-esteem movement. Interestingly, the people, the highest uh, population uh, of people surveyed, uh, with the, the, the highest self-esteem population were death row inmates. They had the greatest self-esteem. <laughs> when they looked at the CEOs, what was the one character trait that they all had in common? Self-control. That was the number one character trait that all of these very successful men had in common. And you go back to the Bible and the book of Proverbs, it's a largely a book about self-control by the grace of God. It's not a moralistic book. It's not just, hey, be self-controlled and you'll get an awesome life. That's not Proverbs. What it is is God says, when you've experienced grace, the grace of God has appeared, Paul says, to teaching us to say no to ungodly passions and say yes to the Lord Christ changing us in our lives. Where do we need to practice self-control? You know, it might be related to alcohol. You know, you, just, you start to need that drink at the end of the day to help you wind down. Uh, might be related to, you know what, wife's out of town. Man, life's hard. Um, I need to look a little porn. And it's okay because it's just the way I, I kind of get relief from the stress of everyday life. Um, might be eating, you know. I need another dessert, man. That just satisfies me so much. I need those sweets or that sh that that um, extra steak or whatever it is. Might be spending. You know, we get kind of down and stuff, and you know, most of the time we think of this as like something that women do. They go shop a bunch, but we click that Amazon button just as much as anybody else. What is it where we need to say, Lord, in this area, I have been seeking to substitute something for you. I've been looking to find my identity, to find joy, to find satisfaction in buying, drinking, looking at porn, whatever it is. Help me to once again practice self-control, not because I want to be a self-controlled man, but because I want to be your man. I want to know your grace and I want to see that as a result. Not my main focus, but you're my main focus. Your grace to me overwhelms me and leads me to that. It's so like Paul says in Titus 2, the grace of God has appeared. That leads to self-control. So <clears throat> the biggest battle we fight, therefore, in our marriage is the battle for our own hearts, brothers. It's not the other person that's the problem. The biggest problem in my marriage is me. The biggest problem in your marriage is you. And that's because we all bring sinful hearts into it, and God is after those today. And he's at work. And the good news is when we all walk out of here and fail again, his grace isn't done. And he's not done with us.